to the City on a Hill Church Forest Hills podcast. We exist to see our neighbors from every culture follow Jesus as King. We're glad you're here and thanks for listening. More information about the life and mission of City on a Hill can be found at coahforesthills.org. morning. If you are a guest with us again, we are so glad that you're here today. You'll find a blue card in your seat. It's a connect card. It's a great way for us to get to know you a little bit better. So there's a few ways for us to uh, follow up with you and for you doing so, for filling that out. Uh, we'll send some info about the church, but we'll also uh, sweeten the pot a little bit. Uh, we'll send you a $5 gift card to Third Cliff Bakery, which is a bakery right down the street. It's fantastic. And uh, we'd love to give that to you as a gift. And then also we'll send you an email. And in that email, uh, there will be a list of charities that we will make a donation donation to $5 for you. Uh, Just send an email back to us and tell us which one you would like for us to donate toward. Um, Our values uh, today as a church are the gospel, community, and mission. The gospel means good news, that we have a generous God who loves us and gave us his own son. Uh, Not that we deserved it, but because of his grace to us. He gave his son Jesus to die on the cross for our sins and to raise again to new life. And so for anyone who enters into that relationship, who receives what Jesus has done for us can be saved. And if you've not entered into that, if you've not received that today, come find me after the service. I would love to share with how you, how you can have that relationship with God. Secondly, community. God created us for relationships. Um, God created us to, to, to care for one another, to serve one another. And we do this through community groups. At City in a Hill, we have groups that meet throughout the week in different parts of the city to get together, to study God's word, uh, to encourage each other, and then also to love and serve our neighbors together. So if you've not connected with a group yet, man, talk to somebody sitting next to you and say, hey, tell me what community group you're in. And if they're not in one, find somebody who is and both both of you show up. Um, or you can fill out that yellow card um, at, at, that in Mark Community Groups. You can drop that or the connection card in the black box in the back. And then lastly, mission. We have a good news that should be told. We should tell others about what Christ has done for us. We join God on his mission to tell others about him. But also our lives are shaped by what Jesus has done for us, that Jesus came to serve us. So therefore we serve others. And so just this past week, we had the opportunity to do that. At the, uh, uh, we had a team in, uh, some, some of you came out on Sunday. We were out at the Boston Housing Authority and did a big block party. And that's one of our announcements. We're actually gonna do that again on the 28th. We're doing that about once a month for the summer. It's a way to build relationships with some of our neighbors. So I wanna invite you guys to come be a part of that, to come hang out, eat cotton candy. I think I ate like four hot dogs. So somebody else has got to come bear the load with me. Um, We're going to be doing that on the 28th. Uh, another announcement is that we have a new to City on a Hill dinner coming up. So if you are new to City on a Hill, say in the last four to five months, this so basically 2022, oh gosh, into 2022, um, if you're new this year, we'd love to just spend some time with you. I'd, I would love for my family to get to know you a little bit, and we'd invite you to our house, um, and uh, you can sign up through our event page, coahforesthills.org slash events, and uh, come over. I'm probably cooking spaghetti. If you don't like spaghetti, we'll figure something else out, uh, but we're limiting this to the first 10 people. And if if it goes beyond 10, we'll do another one. We just want to do this as a way to get to know other people as well as get to know some of the leaders in our church. Uh, Now, today we're going to be continuing our series about what it looks like to thrive in the city of Boston. And today we are going to be talking about money. And so you may be thinking, I picked the wrong Sunday to show up. 
because we don't like to talk about money. Money is a private thing, right? You don't walk around, we don't have icebreaker questions in groups saying, okay, how much money do you make? Like, that's rude. We don't do that. Uh, we think of money as something that's private. It's something that, you know, we, we, we hide our bank account numbers. We don't want to spread that to other people. And, and the reason is, is that because oftentimes the way we think about money can be a struggle. The money is, is a struggle for us because some of us grew up very wealthy. Some of us didn't. Some grew up with very little. Some may be struggling right now. And so money can become a point of pride or it can become a, a point of embarrassment. It can become a point of finding all of our contentment there. Or it could also be a place where we feel despair because we just don't feel like we have enough. And it may even be sensitive for you when it comes to church because maybe you were gone to church or you grew up in a church where all you felt like they did was talk about money. I always feel like they wanted money for something and wanted money for that. And, I, and if that's your experience, I'm sorry that that's been what you have experienced. It does take money for a church to operate, um, but we, there can also be a healthy, an unhealthy balance when it comes to talking about money as well. And so as the church, we need to have a healthy discussion about, about how we use our resources because it is a huge part of our life that goes well beyond what you might give to a church. And I think we've taken this, the phrase from the Bible about, you know, we, we often hear parroted, money is what? The root of all evil. But we leave a little part off the front of that. It's the love of money that is the root of all evil. It's an unhealthy desire for money that is the root of all evil. And so at City on a Hill, we believe that money is a tool. It's something we have to learn to use in order to live life well. And I don't just mean like living a, a wealthy life. I don't mean living a, a prosperous life or, or a comfortable life. But to follow Jesus, we have to understand how we use our money and how it relates to the kingdom of God. Part of being a disciple, and at City on a Hill, we believe we're, we're called to discipleship. We believe that we're to lead people to love, trust, and follow Jesus in everyday life. If we're following Jesus in everyday life, a big part of that is how we use our resources. And we got to figure out how do we thrive in the middle of that. And we need to define what it means to thrive financially. And here's the kicker. It has very little to do with how much money you have. It's very little to do with how much money's in the bank. It's very little to do with your worldly resources. And this is what Paul wants to get at in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. He's writing this letter as a fundraising letter. He's writing it to the Corinthian church and he's a church planner, he's a missionary and he does need to raise funds for an immediate need that he sees. We see from the context that this was for the church in Jerusalem. They've been going through a really difficult period. They were uh, uh, experiencing a severe famine and this was a church that was already extremely, extremely poor. They had been impacted and affected by the fact that they had left everything that they knew and every person that they knew, probably lost jobs in order to follow Jesus. They're destitute. And what all of Paul's churches would do is they would take up a special offering and send it to the church in Jerusalem in order to meet this immediate need. But they sent this, this money to them, to this people who've been ostracized. And he writes this letter to encourage them. And he says, I want you to give. And I want to, I want to show you an example of what this type of giving looks like. And he highlights the churches of Macedonia. He doesn't highlight the wealthy Corinthians. He highlights those who were in extreme poverty. He highlights those who, who gave with an eagerness and with a joy. And the reality is, is whatever your experience is with money, whether you're just absolutely crushing it here at your job and you're getting all kinds of crazy bonuses or it's really a struggle to make ends meet, there's something here we see that allows us to thrive that goes beyond the number of zeros at the end of your paycheck. 
He's saying something to the Corinthians with the Macedonians as the example. And he says, all of you have the means. You have the ability to be generous people. And they had started well. We see in verse 11 that they started out well. So now finish doing it as well. But they started doing it about a year prior in verse 10. And he wanted them to continue in living a generous life. They get caught up with the cares of life. And you notice about this passage, he never says the word money. He never says it. He never says anything about money. And this tells us something about what he's trying to get at, that that it's not about the amount you have. It's, It's not even about what you give. It's not about money itself. It's what money says about your heart. Money is a window into your heart. It's, it's a window into what you value. It's a window into what you believe. It's a, it's a window into who you trust or what you trust. And if we're gonna thrive in the city of Boston, we need to have a, a theology of money that goes beyond how much money is in our bank accounts, how, how money affects us, how it changes us, how, how it shapes us and how we use it to God's glory. So let's take a look at this. Let's look at how, what money says about our hearts and how we can use it to God's glory. So the first idea that we're going to unpack today is this, that we all have an economic belief system. All, we all have an economic belief system. I borrowed this phrase from a pastor named Josh Searcy in a great church in Seattle called Icon. And he talks about how money really reveals what you believe. It reveals what you value. It reveals what you want the most. And what we see is that money is more than how much you have or or how little you have or what you even spend your money on, but that that your resources and your finances get at your heart. They reveal what you want most, what you think money can get you or or help you gain. It, It reveals what you fear the most. What terrifies you if you lose it? It, it? it reveals what you desire and it acts as a window into your heart. And what you begin to see is that you can either have a heart of generosity or a heart of greed. A heart of generosity or a heart of greed. A heart that is open and willing to share your resources and your time and your abilities with others or a heart that says it's all about what I get out of it. Now, nobody thinks they're greedy, Right? No, but no one thinks I'm a greedy person. Nobody says, you know, I could stand to make a little less money. Like nobody says that. In fact, uh, if you look, uh, they did a recent poll, only 19% of people in America think they make enough money. 89% think they're underpaid. Nobody thinks that they have enough. And now listen, you may be truly underpaid. You may be like, you don't know what I make. I'm not saying you shouldn't try to make more money. I'm not saying, I think you should make as much as you can and use it for the kingdom of God. I absolutely believe that. But the question you need to ask yourself, and this is how it reveals your heart in the economic belief system, this has a window, is why do you want to make more money? Why? What's your reasoning? What does it reveal about your heart? Now, there's some really legitimate reasons. You may go, man, like money's tight and like it's a struggle and it's, it's, it's hard to put food on the table. You may be saying, you know, like I really feel like we're a little crammed. Well, maybe I have a little more space. You may say, I want to, I truly do want to be more generous. But none of us think we're greedy because when we imagine greed, we imagine like Scrooge from the Christmas story. From, we, we imagine Ebenezer Scrooge. We imagine someone diving on a bed full of dollar bills and going money, 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 money. That's what we think of when we think of greed. 
But the road and the pathway to greed, there's some signposts along the way that can tell us whether our heart is tending more toward greed than it is generosity. Jared Kirk, who I've mentioned a few times in this, in this, uh, this series, a pastor in the city, wrote a book, and he, he talks about these, these, these signposts. He says, one signpost is that you want money to guarantee your security for the future. Now, look, it's not bad to save, not bad to put money in retirement, but there is absolutely no guarantee. We have seen multiple stock market crashes over the last 150 years. We've seen people's IRAs and their, and their 401ks, all of those things tank. We've seen people be scammed. We've seen people have lose jobs. There's no guarantee. Money cannot guarantee anything. Another signpost that you may be heading toward the pathway of greed is that you want money to tell you that you're successful. It becomes this affirmation to say that the more money I make, the more value I have to myself and to other people. Thirdly, you want money to help you feel accepted. It's a status thing. We walk, you walk into a room and you look at somebody else and go, well, I make more money than them, so I feel better about myself. I don't make as much money as that person. I, I don't feel like I belong. Fourthly, you want money to live, uh, so you can live in perfect comfort. We are a society and a culture that values comfort. And if money can provide that, we want it to do it, but it can lead to greed. And then lastly, you want money to prove to your parents or to whoever that you're not a failure. You want other people to know that you have arrived, that you started at the bottom, but now you're here, that you have made it. And what you notice about all of those signposts is what direction are they pointing? Inward. They're all pointing to ourselves. But you look at the example of the Macedonians and everything is pointed outwards. This, this radical outward orientation about the way that they're using their resources and the way that they're thinking about their money. And Paul lifts them up as an example and they do so with this, this abundance of joy that overflows in a wealth of generosity on their part. And we see down in verse four, it says they were begging earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. They view their resources as a means to bless other people. Now, again, this doesn't mean don't save money. It doesn't mean you can't retire. It doesn't mean you can't ever do anything for yourself. This is not a giant guilt trip today, I promise you. If you read a lot of the Bible, you have, and you have to read the Bible in, in total when it comes to money, the, the Bible talks a lot about being a good steward of money. It talks about in the Proverbs about being wise and about saving money for a rainy day. It talks about using money in ways to address injustice. But it also says in Ecclesiastes chapter five that he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This also is vanity. And as, as is on the screen, some translations show us that not being satisfied means that there's never enough. The question for us is, is there, is it ever enough? And when you look at those signposts of, of greed, whether it's about being accepted, whether it's about not feeling like a failure, feeling like there's enough or living in comfort, whatever it might be, the problem with greed is that the, the goalposts constantly keep getting moved. As soon as you get close enough, as soon as you get to the place where you feel like you finally have enough, something within our hearts just pushes it a little further down the road. And what Paul is telling us in the example of the Macedonians is that it's not that money's not important, it's just not everything. It, it can't solve your problems. Money can't make you happy. 
but it is a tool that God uses and allows you to use to be generous in a way to love your neighbor. And a truly generous heart has open hands, holds everything loosely versus holding it tight to the chest. And so when the gospel begins to reshape how you view money, the the economic belief system shifts. You realize I don't have to hoard everything because God's going to provide. If you look at verse 15, it says, as it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over and whoever gathered little had no lack. If you're familiar with the Bible, God's Old Testament people, the Hebrews, they're, they're wandering in the desert and they're hungry. And God says, I'm going to provide for you. And he rains down from heaven what is called manna, which is like the best we can understand is kind of like a sugary rice cake or like a giant piece of frosted mini wheat. That's kind of the description if you look at it. And all that stuff flows down from heaven and you imagine that sounds great for the next 40 years, let's do it. And so it comes down from heaven and God says, I'm gonna provide for you with this. And you notice in that story that if anyone gathered more than they needed, what happened to it the next day? It rotted. And what began to happen is the people of God, those who were more capable would actually go out and gather more and started sharing it with those who weren't able. Their money and their resources and their ability to accumulate became a means to bless other people. And so what happens is when our belief system shifts around money and our resources and the things that God has provided us, the reason we have a house or a place to live is no longer simply about how big can it be or how comfortable can it be or how nice can it be, but it becomes a means to how can I bless other people? Now that might mean your nuclear family, but also how can I bless my neighbors and my friends and my community group and make this a place of welcome and inviting? Your job becomes a means to not just accumulate as much wealth and as much status as you possibly can, but saying, God, will you bless me and allow me to use this to be a blessing to others? The food that you put on the table becomes open-handed as you invite other people into your house. I talked before about how my daughters have teenage friends and many of them are boys and they eat us out of house and home. And so, but we wanna do that because we wanna be a blessing to them. It's what your finances also free you up and allow you to do. And all of this changes from this hoarding and accumulation mentality to a mentality of how can I bless others? In fact, you may decide I need to make more money or I need to put more margin in my schedule so that I can give more money to other people, so I can be more generous, so I can give more time. And so a great question for us to look at when it comes to our hearts is, am I thinking about money in a way that it's a way to bless other people or is it really about me and what I get? Now, we need to see that as we think about our own economic belief system, a Jesus-shaped economic belief system, Boston has its own. Our city has its own understanding of what it looks like to thrive financially, and it is at odds with what we believe as Christians. Again, Josh Searcy talks about how Seattle centers its economic belief system on selfish achievement or selfish altruism, the idea of being, being generous to other people, but really so that people look at us. And I think Boston is very similar to that. We live in a very wealthy city. And even if you're not wealthy, you may be like, I'm not in on that game. We all desire it. There's a a tug and there's a desire as we look at our city that says that if you make this much money or you work this kind of job, if you're in this type of industry, this is what flourishing looks like. This is what thriving looks like. And the goal becomes through our money is it becomes a system that means it becomes a means to justification. 
It's a means to feel right with others and with the world. It's a means to say, I've, I've realized all my goals and I've finally made it. It can become about our achievement. Or it becomes the selfish altruism that we give or we spend in such a way that really just signals to other people, I care about the right things. I give money to that because that's the right thing to do. I, I, I did this and, I, and I, you know, I only buy organic, right? Not, not downing organic. If you buy organic, keep doing it. But don't do it so other people see it. it. It can become performative. It can become something where it shows other people that I do and care about the right thing. So the part of us thriving when it comes to finances in the city of Boston is being distinct and being different. And one of the clearest ways that we can show this is in our distinctness about money. God always calls his people to be set apart. Israel was to be a people holy and set apart to God. We saw the way that Daniel lived in Babylon as, as someone who would eat differently and think differently and spend differently. And we see this also with the Macedonians. Verse three, the way that they were just so self-giving, it says, for they gave according to their means as I testified and beyond their means of their own accord. And then in verse five, and this, not as we expected. The way they lived was so countercultural. It was so self-giving, it just didn't make sense. What would it look like if for us as Christians, as, as the church in Boston to live financially in such a way that people would go, man, why are these people so generous? Why are they so giving of their time? Maybe you don't have a lot of money. We all got time. We all have the ability to serve. What if people were to look and say, man, there's something just different. I don't understand this. And this is the example that Paul is setting before them. And he's setting before the, the, uh, the, the Corinthian church. And he's saying, I want you to do the same. So we have to figure out how we're called to live differently, how we shift that economic belief system. And I believe this happens a few ways. First is through understanding some general principles about generosity. Understanding some general principles about generosity. I'm gonna drill this again. It's not about how much you have. You need to be very clear. It's not about how much you have because the Macedonians were dirt poor. We're talking like ramen noodles for dinner every night poor. Like they were Poor. And then they lived through this severe test of affliction. They lived through extreme poverty. And look, we don't know what, what the problem was. We don't know exactly what happened, but this was the position from which they lived generous lives. This was probably a group of blue collar workers who were working for very little, for very little money. And they were the most willing to give and the most willing to be devoted to what Paul was asking them to do. And in fact, if you were to just compare dollar for dollar, they probably gave significantly less than the Corinthian church. They gave significantly yet less, but yet Paul considers them to be way more generous. The Corinthian church was a group of people who were so wealthy. But the ones who were honored were the ones giving out of their poverty. It's kind of like if you ever go to a donor wall at a hospital. You ever gone down to like children's hospital and you see the giant donor wall? And there's like the gold circle and the diamond circle and like the double crusted whatever circle at the top. You see that? They don't put people in that top circle who made the greatest sacrifice. They put people in that top circle who gave the most money, regardless of how much of a sacrifice it was. Now, for some people, that may have been their entire, that's what they did with their will. They gave all of their money toward it. Many of those people, that was a drop in the bucket. It was a tax write-off. Who does Jesus honor with the way that they use money? The widow, 
who gave everything she had to honor God? Who does, who does Paul honor? Those giving out of, of great poverty. The issue here is not about how much you have. It's not even about how much you give. It's not about how much money you spend. But does your generosity match your ability? The way that we manage our money shows that it's not about selfish hoarding or status building. And again, Paul is floored by them saying, you're giving beyond your means. You're spending and loving and serving others in ways that don't make any sense. And it demands this response. And what this means for us, because it's not about how much money you have, is that how much your net, your net worth doesn't define you. Your net worth doesn't define your worth or your value because you have a God who loves you and gave everything for you. That you could experience the riches and the glories of heaven. You could be completely broke and you're still perfectly loved by God. And what this also means is that you could be loaded and it doesn't earn you anything before the God of the universe who owns all things. Tony Evans says, what a, stra- what a tragedy to have money in your pocket, but poverty in your heart. But it also means that you're responsible for what you have. You've been entrusted by God with the ability to work, with the resources you have, the God who owns all things to use those things to his glory. And what this does is it means that you're not expected to do beyond what you're able to do. Verse 13 says that that Paul's saying these things so that he wouldn't be a burden. He wanted to be about fairness. It means that you can serve and love your neighbor as God has allowed. The second principle is that generosity is more about the posture of your heart. Again, Paul doesn't praise the amount. He's not sucking up to the money people here. But what does he say? In verse one, he says, I want you to know. The thing I want you to know is about the, the tenor and the, and the attitude with which they were generous. And we see that the Macedonians, they do this with an abundance of joy. Have you ever met someone who is just an abundance of joy? They walk in a room and they have a giant smile on their face. It's usually after a cup of coffee. They, they walk in the room and they're just so joyous. Is that the way that you and I imagine ourselves spending money? Not the way I always am. I used to joke that if I had to spend over $50, my stomach hurt because I, I just didn't like spending money. But are, are, we, are we joyful people? Do, do we, does joy describe the way that you think about using your resources or do you get that tight feeling in your chest like I would? Or do you say that this is good and I can help others and this is a blessing to my family I can enjoy the good gifts of God. How many times when you're paying bills, do you praise God? Anybody done that? Sometimes we're praising God. Thank you, there's enough money left in the bank to pay this bill. But do we ever say, God, I thank you for the provision that you've given me to do this? Paul's goal is not to get the Corinthians to be generous to Jerusalem by any means necessary. He wants their joy. God wants you to think about money, not giving it away or spending it on others or or doing things for the kingdom begrudgingly. He wants you to do it with a joyous heart. But not just joyfully, but eagerly. The idea of being eager is like standing on your toes, being ready to be generous. And so they're actually in verse four, begging Paul for the opportunity. They're saying, tell us how we can do this. We wanna be at the ready when the opportunity arises And when you think about the way you engage in your own neighborhood, are you looking around at your neighbors and your friends and asking, Lord, how can I use what you've given me? It's a readiness. 
Verse 12, it says, for if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. What has God given you and are you ready to use it for his glory? I heard this great quote this past week uh, about the Navy SEALs. It says, this one Navy SEAL says, you don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. That's a fascinating quote. You don't rise to the occasion, you sink to the level of your training. We have to train our hearts to be eager to do what God wants us to do with our resources, to anticipate it with joy. So we do it joyfully, we do it eagerly, but also we see that it's without compulsion. The the, the proper attitude of a generous heart is that nobody should have to drag it out of you. And in verse eight, we see Paul saying this, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. He doesn't want it to come across forced. He doesn't want to have to strong arm them into doing this. He's not saying, look, be more like the Macedonians. Just just be like them, act like them. No, he wants the way that they use their resources to tell a story of love. And we see in his previous letter to the Corinthians, he gives the definition of love. He says in 1 Corinthians 13, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast, is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Does that attitude of love describe how you use money? Does it describe the joyfulness that that no one has to tell you to do it, but you do it because it's an expression of your heart? It's kind of like when, you know, if somebody asked why you gave them a birthday gift, you'd say, well, you know, because I had to. You shouldn't do that. Like you say, I had to. You gave me one of my birthdays, so I figured I have to give you a gift. That's not loving, right? It's like, well, it better be a good gift because, you know, you're not very kind in this. I did this because I had to. The solution to this is not to just not do it, but it's to see these as warning signs for your heart. It's not to to not give or to not be generous because if that's what you're doing, you'll be waiting forever. But it's knowing that when you see this tendency of greed or selfishness, it's like lights on the dashboard of your car that are saying, there's a love problem here. Because when we're not loving, we tend to just do the minimum. We tend to do as little as as we possibly can to assuage our guilt versus loving people freely like Jesus has loved us. The third thing we see is that uh, a principle is that how you use your money is an act of worship. At its root, everything we do is about the glory of God. 1 Corinthians 10, 31, whether you eat, drink, whatever you do, do it to the glory of God. Matt Harris next week gets a much more fun sermon than I got today. He gets one on fun and recreation and all that. And if you've never, if you've ever met Matt and Sue, this is the perfect sermon for Matt to preach next week. He gets the fun sermon. We think about doing all those things to the glory of God, but it also accounts for our money. The way we use our money is an act of worship. And verse five tells us it is no different. It says, it says, and this is not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They gave themselves to, to God. It was an act of worship, an act of laying themselves down and saying, God, you get control of my money. You get control of my resources because you are my greatest treasure. Matthew 6, 19 says, do not lay up for yourselves treasure on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart 
will be also. For us to do this as an act of worship, we have to be able to hold these things loosely because Jesus is our greatest treasure. My friend Art Cardin is is an economist and, and he says these words. He says, everything you buy is an expression of your values. Everything you buy. Everything you spend your money on is an expression of what you want. So you buy food for your family. Why? Because you want them to eat. Or for yourself, you want to eat. You buy transportation because you know you need to get to a job. You buy certain clothing because you know you maybe it's what you feel like would help you fit in or it's what's required for your work. Everything we do expresses something we value. When it comes to the way that we use our money or spend our money, we need to be asking questions like this. Does, does this help or does this hurt others? Does this help me advance the mission of Jesus? Does, does this alleviate suffering? Does, does this bless other people? Does it bless my own family? And when we see these as, as acts of worship, what it does is it allows us to bear the cost and to bear the burden over the long haul. I even think about the reason like, why do we pay, why do we live in Boston? It's an expensive place to live. Why do we live here? One reason that we choose to do this and choose to pay higher rent and pay higher prices for like everything is because we want more people to meet Jesus. We want more people to see Jesus in this place. See, our view, lastly, our view of the gospel shows, shows or sorry, our view of money shows the gospel. It says here in verse nine, you know the grace of God. You, you have a God who, who gave everything to you. You have a God who left the spiritual riches of heaven and laid all of that down and, and became poor like us so that you and I could be rich in him. And this is not a passage about material wealth. This is a passage about a God who gives us the spiritual riches of heaven that all that Jesus has becomes ours. The relationship he had with the Father that only he deserved becomes ours through his life, death, and resurrection on the cross. And when you realize that your greatest need has been taken care of, you realize you have a God who provides for all you need, that if he will provide for the sparrows in the field, he will provide for you and I. The last part we're gonna unpack today is that we need to understand what it looks like to live out some practical steps of generosity. Just kind of quickly, and I wanna try to hit these as we wrap up. Paul turns his attention to the Corinthians. He says in verse 10, he says, and in this matter, I give my judgment that this benefits you. He wants them to, to think through how they use their money. They'd started well, in, we see in verse, end of verse 10, beginning of verse 11, but something stopped them. So something stopped them in their tracks. And I believe that many of us are in this place. Many of us, we, we set a goal at the beginning of the month and we're like, I'm gonna spend my money well. I'm not gonna get burritos every night. And we end up failing. I mean, I, I said, that I really wanna be generous. I wanna, I, wanna, I wanna give to the church and we get to the end of the month and it's just not there. Like we, we do these things and I think there's some things that get in the way. And so I think the first thing we have to do is we have to address the barriers. There are some real barriers that are in place for us to keep us from gen- being generous people. And for some of us, it is simply our hearts. We just, need, we just need a heart change. We need something to change in our hearts. And if you dig down behind every sin and behind every struggle, it always comes back to one of two things. It either comes back to fear or to pride. Every time. It's fear or it's pride. We'll do, a, we'll do a, an exercise of this sometime. I can give me any sin and I can work it on a whiteboard how it eventually gets back to fear or pride. It's the fear that there's just not enough. It's the fear that if I don't spend my money this way or if I don't hold my money, I'm gonna lose out or I'm gonna miss out. That if I, if I do this, what, what if I get taken advantage of? If, what if I make the wrong decision? And, and it can be really paralyzing. 
And the other side is pride that I, I just earned it. It's mine. This is about what my, this is about my status building. But I think for many of us, it goes beyond that though too. Some of us just need to get our financial houses in order. Some of us financially, if we're just honest, it's a mess. We kind of have like that, you know, like swipe and pray method, right? When it comes to the, the grocery store or the whatever, we're just praying there's enough money in the bank account. And, and in that, we, we look at that, we think, you know, maybe my debt's a problem. Like if you went to school, you probably have debt. If you're a consumer, you may have credit card debt. And like, this is not to shame anyone. Verse 13 tells us that we want people to be free in this. But you may look at the balance sheet every month and go, man, it just doesn't add up. There's just too much month and not enough paycheck. I don't say there's a lot of grace and love for you here. But I also would challenge you to take a really hard look at what you're spending and the type of debt you're in and ask yourself the question, how do I move out of these things so they're not an albatross on my neck keeping me from being generous? The second is that you need to let others help. Practical step to this is letting other people help. We do not fight our problems alone. You really need community. Verse six, it says that he, he sent Titus and Titus urged them. And this idea of urging is he encouraged them. He said, you can, you can do this. And he kept their eyes fixed on the goal. This is a, another among many great reasons to be a part of a community group because a community group is a great place to begin to unpack some of those struggles I talked about a second ago, to address some of those barriers and to say, you know what? I'm struggling, I'm doubting. I need to talk about my debt. I, I don't think, I'm just not spending my money well. You need to let other people speak in who can help keep your eyes fixed on the goal of honoring God with your resources. And another benefit of this is that your community group can help bear the burden. I've seen community groups who pay off debts. I've seen groups who, who meet needs and, and, and not to put it all on one person as verse, verse 13 says, not to burden you at the expense of others, but the reality is, is that your abundance at the present time should supply their needs so that their abundance may supply your need later down the road. We need to let other people in. But lastly, we need to set some really good goals, some good goals and build some good habits. So kind of run through these quick. One thing you can do is make a budget. Again, some of us have that, that strategy where you get to the end of the month and we don't know where the money went. And this might get really hard and you might have to look and take a really good look in the mirror and say, man, I'm just spending too much on this and not enough on that. Again, let other people in, let them help. Make the, right, make the sacrifices you need to make. Set some generosity goals. Set some goals on how, and ask God, how can I be generous with what you've given me? One simple way we do this is through the church. We do this, we, we say at the end of our services that when we give, it is for our members and our regular attenders. So if you're a guest today, we're not asking for that. I wanna be very clear. But one way as a member of this church, we, we ask our members to give. And, and as a disciple of Jesus, this is the way we, we, we serve the community together. We can do more together than we can do apart. So I would challenge you, like if you're giving sporadically, consider giving consistently. Um, if, you, if you give consistently, ask yourself like, Lord, is, is what I'm giving, is it sacrificial? Is this something that I have to think about before I actually give it? But also not just that, but what are ways that you can practically be a blessing to those around you? Um, may, we've been reading this book called Surprise the World in Community Groups. And then in, the, in this book, we talk about how we should be a blessing to other people. So maybe you have an awesome patio with like great lights and a grill. How can you use that to be a blessing to others? Maybe you have some extra cash at the end of the month and you just say, I'm gonna set aside a certain amount and when the need arises, I'm gonna meet that need. 
Maybe it's, maybe it's not money, maybe it's gifts or you've got like granola bars or something that you can put in your pocket and when you meet somebody on the street and they need food, you can provide that need. But the last thing is that, and it truly is the last thing, um, we wanna make these habits gospel habits and gospel goals. What good is it to gain the whole world and lose your soul? But the way you use your money, is it shaped by Jesus's love for you that you get to a place where what you have doesn't define you. It's not the ultimate thing. It's not what satisfies you, but you have a God who gave everything for you, who provided your deepest need. And in the way that you're generous, it leads to greater delight in Him. Let's pray.